Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 6th, 2022, Monday. I spent all the weekend watching movies, old movies, three movies in particular. Three British movies, classic ones, Brick Lane, 2007, Shame, 2011, which is, a, according to Wikipedia, at least a British erotic psychological drama. I'm not sure the British do erotic psychological dramas that often, but when they do, they do them classically like Shame. And, of course, The Iron Lady, the 2011 film about uh, The Iron Lady herself, Margaret Thatcher, what do all those films have in common? Uh, those of you in the audience who are familiar with the movie business will know that they were all produced by my old friend Tessa Ross, who some people describe as the mother of British filmmaking. But in addition to Tessa, those three films all have in common that they were written by my guest today, uh, Abby Morgan. She co-wrote, I think, one of them. The other two she wrote herself. She is a very distinguished dramatist. She's also very well known as a television dramatist. She wrote The Hour and most recently The Splitter, a British legal drama. So she's an expert in representing uh, the drama of others. But she's not on this show today to talk about the dramas of others, of fictional characters. She has a magnificent new book out. It's a bestseller already in the UK. It's out uh, tomorrow in the United States. This is not a pity memoir. It's about uh, the last three or four years of her family history. And I'm thrilled that uh, Abby is joining us from, appropriately enough, North London. Abby, you are a very distinguished, prize-winning uh, writer for, uh, for, for film, for drama, for television. How hard was it to go from that to writing such an intensely personal story of, of your sickness and your husband's sickness uh, recently, and this is not a pity memoir. Well, in many ways, it saved me. So it, it wasn't so much it was hard, it was just became an essential thing to do, I think. And, and the other thing is, you know, whenever I start writing a screenplay, I, I tend to write long prose. So it, it, there was a very natural evolution for me to write you know, to go into this extended prose writing. So it, it was, it was, what was hard was actually while I was living it, I was experiencing it in the way that um, I look at movies, you know, I'm constantly seeing my life in terms of scenes and dialogue. And that was very strange when I started to kind of put that whole discipline on, on what was a, a hugely traumatic and kind of catastrophic period in my life. Um, to put I, it mildly, I, um, it's funny watching those films, The Iron Lady is about, uh, the end, essentially, of, of Margaret Thatcher's life when she loses her mind. The split is about divorce, problems between married couples. Your book is also, in a sense, about the marriage problems you had with your, your husband, Jake, but also about this terrible, catastrophic, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a stroke, brain disease that he experienced. Um, so perhaps you might tell everyone what happened. So in June 2018, my partner of nearly 18 years, Jacob, an actor, um, I, I came home one morning um, following a very usual June morning where I'd 
you know, gone out and had coffee, did some work, pick up, picked up some sushi. And um, I came home to find Jacob collapsed on the bathroom floor. And the book really picks up the moment that from the moment that I found Jacob passed out through to um, the kind of ensuing two, three years uh, that then followed, which was, you know, a bizarre and kind of extraordinary experience, but actually one in which caused me to kind of reflect on my relationship, my identity, my mortality, both mine and his. And and in a way, the book came out of that, a desire to kind of understand who we were as a couple, who we were as a family, and who I was as a partner and as a as a human, I guess. And 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 that's how you know the 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 memoir came about. The book ends, uh, sorry, the book begins with marital discord, both of you accusing each other of snoring too loudly. It's a classic marriage problem. You're sleeping in separate rooms. He has MS, so he's sick. Uh, And then he has this terrible collapse, doesn't he? So in a sense, I guess there's, maybe I'm misreading this, Abby, but there's an element of, of guilt at the beginning from you in the book, is there? Yeah, I think one of the last conversations Jake and I had before his collapse was, you know, the remark that I was a terrible nurse. And actually, one of the other things he said to me, which was totally true, you know, I, you know, Jake had an underlying condition of multiple sclerosis. He was very high functioning um, and very fortunate in many ways. You know, he had periods where he wasn't well, but it was not so severe that he couldn't live a very full life. And, and in fact, was he'd been working as an actor the week he collapsed. Um, but actually you know, the thing that was kind of extraordinary about that day, it was like any other normal day. And I think, you know, one of the things is when when the extraordinary happens to the ordinary. And in many ways, Jake and I had a very ordinary marriage. You know, I suppose to a certain degree, the kind of work I do, the kind of work he does, our lives collide and career and graze, you know, the more glamorous elements in life, i.e., you know, Hollywood and red carpets and, you know, film premieres and interesting dinners and parties but ultimately we have a very you know normal marriage with all its highs and lows so that when Jake collapsed you know he he it was discovered he'd had a brain seizure and this was a result of um, a a rare form of encephalitis called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis but it's better known as brain on fire and if you've ever experienced or witnessed or know about brain on fire it's a kind of it's 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 a it's a it's a a form of encephalitis is it's a brain inflammation that causes you to cognitively physically and psychiatrically um fall apart which is what happened over the following two weeks and and while that was happening it became apparent that jake wasn't necessarily going to survive this and the only way to ensure that he could survive this was to put him into a medically induced coma and so jake was then put into a medically induced coma for seven months and and during that time, that's when I started to keep notes and really observe and really start to reflect on my relationship with Jacob. One of the striking moments in the book, Abby, uh, which has already um, been a lot of headlines, is he didn't recognize you. He recognized some things, but he didn't know who you were. But in a odd way, you didn't kind of recognize him. Uh, I found this thing online. Who is Abby Morgan's husband, Jacob Krzyzewski? Mm. You in the book you it seems to me as if you're piecing together memories of him is that fair yeah I think memories of him and memories of us really and you know where Jake went silent and into a deep slumber I think that's when I started to talk to him and communicate to him in my head and you know one of the things that you know obviously someone asked me if 
you know, when he, what, you know, when he was in a coma, someone kind of casually remarked, you know, what if he does wake up and doesn't know who you are anymore? And at the time, I dismissed it as a kind of bad plot twist stroke, you know, very cliched Hollywood trope that would never happen. So when Dick Jacob did wake up, and 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 whilst we were euphoric that you know he was alive, he'd come through the kind of worst part of the illness, the encephalitis. It looked hopeful that you know, though there was a long way to go and clearly a lot of work and and some damage of some kind, um, some brain damage of some kind, there was a lot of hope that he would improve. It became apparent within the first um, two to three weeks that something was very seriously wrong with regard to his attitude towards me and, um, you know, a series of very small little moments in the way he looked at me and the way he responded, but kind of culminating in Valentine's Day and the delivery of a kind of bright red cellophane, red heart tied to his bed that, you know, I bought thinking he'd find it funny and seeing a look in his eyes where he was both embarrassed and confused mm -hmm. by it. It, 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 it. it was very obvious that he more than didn't know who I was. I was positively not his wife. And when questioned, he went, that's not my wife. Well, he and wasn't that, your wife. I mean, you weren't his wife. You, no, you heard at I, the beginning I, that there was some unease and irritation on your part that he had even though you had two kids together and lived together, what, 20 mm -hmm. years, he refused to mm -hmm. marry you. Yeah, and I think all those questions are something that I reflect on in the book, you know, that we'd been married, we'd been together 18 years, but we weren't married. And actually, it's the constant, um, it's the constant element I'm bartering with throughout the book. And one of the things that I think, well, yeah, he's right, I'm not his wife, I'm his, his girlfriend, he meant, his, you know, he meant his girlfriend. But, but actually, I knew instinctively that there was something deeply wrong. And and, I, and from that, you know, we pieced together that actually Jake was suffering from this very rare delusion called Capgras delusion, which is the belief of in doubles or imposters. And it it's normally focused on someone you're close to. In this case, it was very much focused on me. It can be focused on a pet or a house. You can come back post a, you know, a traumatic brain injury of this kind and, you know, a, an acquired brain injury, which is unusual. It doesn't normally come out of an acquired brain injury, i.e. one that's come out of some kind of virus or infection or you know, it, it often comes out of a traumatic brain injury if you've hit your head or been in a car accident or it's seen in some form in dementia where there's degeneration of some kind of the brain. But it's very rare to come out of an acquired brain injury in the way it did with Jacob. But, you know, it, it, it was the belief that not that I didn't exist, Abby Morgan exists, but that I wasn't Abby Morgan and that I had been replaced by an imposter. And, and him as you well. Know. I mean, you, it's a sort of mutual thing in a weird way, isn't it? Well, it took, I mean, I think I think that was the turning point for me. I mean, I, I think, you know, in the first few weeks stroke months, there was a sort of, you know, it was a seismic shaking kind of what the hell is this? And, you know, it, it oscillated from being terrifying to being peculiar to at times being very funny. But there was a very key moment when Jacob came home and I realised that, you know, I, I'd, I'd sort of lent him up against the, the, the wall we were preparing to go out and you know, there was quite a precarious kind of um, choreography that had to go around getting Jake ready for anything at that time, because, you know, he was physically very difficult for him to walk, very difficult for him to dress himself, do anything. But I saw the way he looked at his reflection in the hallway mirror. And I, I said, who is that? And his reply was, I don't know. And for me, that was a real turning point where I realized, actually, it wasn't that he had forgotten me, he'd forgotten himself. And everything, in a, in a way, was disorientated and turned on its head. And so it was very natural that the person closest to him who would be able to reassure him and go, no, no, you are who you are, you know, that wasn't me because he wasn't here. He didn't know who he was. So in a way, that sort of made it much easier for me to start to understand and help Jacob. You couldn't make this stuff up, or at least a sort of classic English dramatist like you may not 
been able to make this up. It's more of a, a Central European narrative, isn't it? Could have come like, out. I can see. It, I can see it's got a kind of slightly art house felt, a sort of scene, you know, feel to it. And also, you know, we've we've seen this. You know, we've seen these, and you know, we've seen movies. We've seen, you know, a Total Recall, and you know, Fifty First Dates, and you know, Eternal you know, sunshine of the spotless mind, you know, which all have elements of people not, you know, not knowing one another, losing one's mind. And so it just felt too much of a cliche, but actually the reality of living with someone like that, the reality of seeing that level of cognitive, you know, psychiatric disorientation, it's, it's, it's peculiar. And also it's very hard because you're not the only one navigating it. Those around you, those who love you, your children, your, you know, Jake's family, my family, the doctors, the consultants, they had to find a way of, you know, you know, drawing on me, Jacob really needed me. And so it was Jacob himself who came up with this idea that I work for the state. And that felt like a very sort of logical, um, you know, logical conclusion, you know, for Jake, this, this is why I must so be the, the, NH, the NHS had sent you along. Somehow the NHS, and in a way that again was another liberator because I thought, okay, well that's kind of I can fall into line with that. Yes, that makes sense. I've yes, you're right. I'm I'm here to help look after you and the children. And so, uh, you know, I, I was willing to do anything that would allow me to stay in the room with Jake because I felt very strongly that, I guess it was kind of arrogance, a slight messiah complex, but I had this very strong sense that if I kept pummeling away, there would be a way of bringing him back. You know. You begin the book with this very chilling quote from Stephen Hawking, which I found, ironically enough, on Brainy Quote. Mm. Hawking writes, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Um, there's not a lot of religion in your book, is there? Some people would have turned to religion of one kind or another, mm. but you are uh, determined not to invent fairy stories around this well I think my you know I think my role model for that was Jacob you know I, the the thing about Jacob is he had a very strong sense of faith certainly cultural faith he was Jewish I didn't come from that kind of background you know certainly well, he's I'd, still Jewish isn't he yeah he's well he's Jewish but he's not I would say he's not orthodox he's cultural you know it's a cultural thing for him as much as anything and he doesn't you know he doesn't he, I, he's much more invested in science and he was the one for me that you know he's I think one of the the strengths of my marriage with Jacob and has always been the case. And in a way that was probably what, what was at times made it hard, but ultimately helped us both was that there's a, there's a huge level of honesty and debate with Jake and I, and we would discuss everything. And so I think when this happened to Jake, I, I knew very strongly the, how Jacob, the Jacob I knew would deal with it and how he would perceive it. And um, I guess from his point of view, he would draw upon the things he knows, which is science and the belief in the consultants and the doctors and actually what makes up us. And that doesn't mean there's not spirituality in that. That doesn't mean that's not without faith and hope. I mean, one of the things I've taken away from this experience is the incredible power of science and the incredible miraculous ability of the body to recover and regenerate. And that to me is beyond any religion. You know, I, I, I totally respect anybody who has a faith. I don't have the faith in quite that way. But I do have a huge faith in something bigger than myself, you know, the kind of scientific world, the universe. There is something for me powerful in that. And I watched and have watched Jacob, you know, be have his life saved by the power of science and medicine. And so by you know, the NHS. Yeah. And, and by the NHS. Yeah, absolutely. And 
the element of luck, which seemed self-evident at first, um, or bad luck, um, you reveal wasn't bad luck, that he actually, um, that, that what he experienced was a consequence of a drug that got withdrawn from the NHS after safety concerns in 2018. So there is, it, there isn't so much of a metaphysical, but perhaps more of a scientific explanation for what happened. Is that fair? Yes, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, the consensus is that Jacob was on the last phase of a drugs trial. And as a result of that drugs trial, um, uh, the drug was voluntarily drawn, withdrawn in March um, 2018. And um, in June 2018, Jacob collapsed. And the belief is that it's a result of the withdrawal from that drug. Um, that's the consensus amongst the um, medical professions who cared for him. And so we're going through a process at the moment of you know, applying for compensation through the guidelines, the voluntary guidelines that pharmaceuticals sign up to as a result of, of drugs trials going wrong or having fatal or tragic in injury. So one of the things that amused me in the book is that you know that you've never been very, you've been very close to producers, directors, but not to actors. You've never been close to actors and yet you married one. Well, and also my mother's an actress and my father's an actor. So, I, you know, it's not that I haven't been close to actors. I've been very close to actors, but actors I work with, I tend to only, you know, I've, I've got to know actors often in many different spheres. You know, I grew up with actors. Um, my father ran theatres my entire life. So they've always been my natural tribe, if you want. But actually, actors that I meet on set, they tend to, you know, you tend to breeze through your, one's lives very, very intensely on set, but you don't actually get to spend that much time with them. Whereas producers and directors, you often spend a lot of time with. However, I found that working on long running series, which is what I've done through the split, you know, we're on the third season of that. Um, one of the great joys of that was I did get to spend more time with actors, but on the whole, we burn, you know, they burn very bright. They're essential. They're some of my favorite people, but no, I don't get to spend much time with them beyond, you know, those very short rehearsal periods or, or those brief meetings on sets. Speaking of tribes, Abby, um, the one tribe I share with your husband, uh, now he is your husband because you, you married uh, when it was it 2021, 2022? Uh, June 2021, just a year 20, ago. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, but he is a, a big football fan. And, and, and you suggest in the book that football helped him get through this in a peculiar way. And in a way, football replaced you for a while. He was married to football. Well, and he was I think probably, there's probably a, a lot of people out there whose partners love football. And yeah, my wife would say the same about me. Replaced. I mean, Jacob, you know, uh, Tottenham Hotspur has always been a massive passion for Jacob ever since I've known him. I think one of the first times, you know, dates I went on with Jake was to go and see them play. So, um, you know, and over the years I've, I've grown fond of football too. But I think football for Jacob was essential. If you think about it, you know, it, it, it the, uh, the, the rules and the, the, the shape of a football game is very clear. It's something that actually Jake absolutely held on to, knew really well. I think it was very reassuring and familiar. And also, you know, it's a game of two halves. There's It, it, it has its highs and lows. It's a sort of perfect contained kind of experience. And so I think for Jacob, very early on watching football, I mean, when he was very Ill, Ill at the beginning and before he went into a coma, um, it was the World Cup. And then you know, actually, when he woke up again, he very quickly picked up watching football again. And I think the rhythm and the metronome of football, you would watch him tracking the game and realising that there was something much more deeper than just his pure love of football and his passion for the game. But actually, I felt there was a sort of slow cognitive sense of his brain using it to help rewire as well. 
The book is entitled uh, This Is Not a, a Pity Memoir, and I think it's designed more to pity you, um, Abby, because uh, the second narrative in the book is your own cancer and your own mis- a du- Is it a double mastectomy? No, just a single mastectomy. Think single mastectomy, but you also got very sick in this same period. Uh, but you're determinedly um, against writing a book about making people feel sorry for yourself. It seems like your model is uh, um, Ruth Picardy, uh, mm. before I say goodbye. What is it about Picardy's work that you find so valuable? Well, I mean, it was very significant to me because one of the first conversations I ever had with Jacob was, as, was you know, a, a meeting. I met Jacob at a dinner party and I was at the time I was chasing the rights to Ruth's beautiful memoir, which is a series of her articles that she wrote a newspaper article she wrote, but also emails about the last few months um, as she faced the end of her life as a result of breast cancer. And I found them very moving and I loved them. And I met Jacob at a dinner party and I happened to share that actually I was a writer and I was chasing this memoir and he'd actually read them and was very enthusiastic. But there was a very drunk girl to sitting next to him who leveled this lobbied back how much she hated these pity memoirs. And so you know, mm-hmm. cut to 18 years on when I'm experiencing so much from, you know, Jacob's collapse through to my own, you know, medical, you know, diagnosis and um, I suppose recovery story. It felt very apt that actually I would meditate on what is a pity memoir and that this is not a pity memoir. And, you know, what I talk about in the book is I don't think there is such a thing as a pity memoir. I think it's just words on pages. And if they mean something to someone, then they're worth being said, you know, they're worth being written. And so, in a way, the book is also a meditation on what is a pity memoir? Why do we write these things down? What is the purpose of them? Um, and, and and so it is very important to me. And also, I just, I love Ruth's writing. And I, I actually subsequently went on to work on an adaptation of Justine Picardy's very beautiful, also a memoir about her trying to reconnect with the loss of her sister through the spirit world called um, If the Spirit Moves You. And, uh, you know, so I have a huge affinity like, respect profound connection with both those books and and they were very much uh you know in a weird sort of way they became beautiful touchstones for me when I was writing my own book do you think some cultures are more susceptible to pity memoirs than others do you think the British for example probably a little bit more resistant than the Americans I don't think that. No, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I just think that we all have different ways of dealing with loss and tragedy and grief. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've adapted a, a, a television show about the Boxing Day tsunami. And that was an extraordinary experience just to see the way grief is filtered through different cultures and different nationalities. But actually, I think all ultimately, you know, everyone is just trying to make sense of an experience. Yes, there may be some cultural tropes, some you know, uh, you know, nationalistic qualities that are you could ascribe to different countries. But I, I guess, you know, I think I think Britain has a, you know, Britain, I think this idea of us being uptight is is a bit of an old adage. I th- certainly think culturally, there are differences. But I think we're all just trying to make sense of, of huge, enormous, you know, complex situations. And sometimes I, I think what's amazing about the, the Americans, I, you know, what I noticed in America is that there is this huge brand in a very good way of positivity and a desire, desire to understand and process and make sense of very difficult situations. And, you know, every country in America, probably more than most at the moment, is dealing with hugely, you know, complex political, social, 
moral you know situations and and so you know i i I like the fact that they debate and interrogate through writing through books through through memoirs this is a book ultimately i think in many ways about love Uh, i looked up love on the internet lots of different definitions uh but you have this wonderful sentence in the book with i think the best sentence at least uh, uh my favorite sentence uh at one point, you say, I think, to a friend that you're walking on hamster teeth. The problem is that there is only one word for love. What did you mean by that? And do you still believe that? Well, what I believe is that the one word is very powerful because, it's, you know, I describe what I feel for Jake as this hum of love. But we also have conventions around love. We have conventions around marital love. We have conventions around familial love. We have conventions around sibling love. And yet, actually, it's also complex. It's also interchangeable. You know, and and actually, you know, watching someone you have been so intensely involved with, you've built a family with, you've built a life with, you know, watch them have their whole being torn apart, and watch them have to reconstruct themselves. You know, it it, it meant that there there have been very different facets to my love for Jacob. You know, at times I've had to be a carer. At times I've had to be a mother. At times I've had to be a friend. At times I've had to be, you know, a professional advocate. Um, now I'm a wife and a partner again, you know, those things, they've, they've been all consuming. And also, I've had to interrogate how each one has brought its different, you know, gifts and problems. And so I when I say that, I'm talking what I discover is, it's difficult, because love isn't just one thing, it's many things. And yet, the thing that I hold on to is that, you know, I held on to the fact that there is this kind of hum of love I have for Jake. And through it all, even when it was very difficult, he was still my favorite person. He was still the person I wanted to be with. But that didn't mean at times it wasn't challenging. And I suppose I that's what I sometimes reached for is I reached for different definitions, different ideas of love. And I guess that's why I chose to write about love. That's, you know, I didn't set out to write about my love for Jake. That just became the kind of beating heart of the book. And I realized that while I was trying to interrogate who I I am, who I was, who we were, I was also interrogating the nature of our love. What does he think of the book? He's not read it. You know, the irony is that, you know, probably the person I wrote it most was for him and he's not read it. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it's really difficult for him. Um, you know, it's in, in many ways we've all been to a country that he he was, you know, didn't visit in the same way. He's had a very different experience. And I suppose the second and what he would say is, you know, well, if it's not re- written by Lee Childs, I'm not interested. And, you know, he kind of just, well, I mean that he like, you know, he's, 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 he's more interested in the thrillers. He's more interested in the now. He's more interested in the, the movies and art. And, you know, he's been, to, he's interested in everything except going back and interrogating that and vis- seeing that experience again. You know, I think one of the things that, that's been brilliant about Jake is I've asked him, how does he feel about the fact I've written a book about our life, his life, him, me, I I still struggle about whose story it is. I talk about that in the book is that, you know, you've written about everyone else's life. It's right. You write about your own. And so he's very supportive of it. And I, I think one day he'll read it. I think what's interesting about the book being out in the world is that it's being filtered back to him often through interviews. You know, he listens to the interviews. He often reads the extracts. He, you know, he sees things on Instagram. So he's aware of the shape of, uh, of what it's about. But actually, you know, he's still going through his recovery. So it's there for him as a as a touchstone, as a, a window into my experience and what we experienced as a family. But it, it is very much one person's point of view. You know, the, 
there's a community that holds someone when they fall apart like this. You know, Jake's family were wonderful, incredibly supportive, but I'm sure they have a very different take on it. My own children went through it and they would have a different take right. on it. Right. Uh, and your children come out of it, wonderful kids, and you're very lucky to have yeah. such wonderful kids. You know, it's an odd, it's an odd thing, Abby, because when, when did you finish the book? So I finished writing the book. Um, I actually finished writing the book Christmas of last year, but then I added a kind of add. I added a small kind of catch up, um, very brief catch up, catch up conversation, which I, is a kind of nod to Jacob's and my marriage, which we t- we got married in June 2021. So the book actually, you know, in, in many ways, there's been huge and radical changes since I finished. The right, book. and that and that's the, the that that's what I want to sort of end on is. When I was reading it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I I read it as if this guy was just, there was no scientific way that he could recover. Mm. And so in a sense, it was written as if he could never read it and he would never Mm. know it. And yet Mm. what amazes me, and this is why it's such a wonderful, I mean, on so many levels, it's such an amazing story and such a wonderful book, is you said to me that over the last six months, this isn't in the book, he's actually made a miraculous recovery. So he's mm. back to 80 or 90% of where he was. Mm. He is. He's. I mean, I think none of us expected it. I mean, his neuro, everyone, you know, his neuropsychiatrist describes it as astonishing. And um, when I said, well, what do you think's happened? And he said, he's come back online. You know, there's the, that computer analogy again. But And that came from him, you know. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, I think we started... There were there were tweaks and there was definitely you could see him starting to wake um in the sort of summer of last year certainly around our marriage he was very present he was very quiet still but he was very present but mm. actually the real changes started to happen i really noticed it over christmas and then january february march is where we started to get very excited and think gosh he's coming way beyond everything anything we expected that said he's also profoundly changed and um, he would himself admit that, you know, I think so much has come back for him, but he's still got cognitive and physical issues. You know, there's, he's having to, he's had to relearn everything. He was a brilliant skier. He was a brilliant tennis player. Um, you know, very active. Um, he's just got onto a bicycle, which is amazing. He started to play tennis again. Um, but I think what, what all of us are excited to see is that his intellect, his humor, his joy to life has come back. And, I think if you ask Jake, you know, how he feels about his life, he'd say he's living his best life now. And that's a very active, determined um, philosophy Jake has about his life now, which is he knows how close he came to not being here. And I'm not talking about just death. I'm talking about death as the ultimate end. But actually, he was going to live in a very different way. And I think our hope is that Jake is, you know, has a huge potential he's going to fulfill. But, you know, he has cognitive issues, he has memory issues, he has, um, you know, he has, he's coming to terms with something that's, you know, been huge and, and life-changing, and it has been life-changing. So whilst he's made this great recovery and we're all inwardly punching the air, um, the experience has changed us all. And so as a family, we're really sort of going through our own recovery now and and regrouping. And, and and what's the greatest relief is that Jacob can be part of that conversation and part of that recovery now. And, and finally, Abby, um, what about Abby Morgan? How is she different in 2018 than she is today in 2022? Well, you know, I think 
you know, they say things comes in threes and it came in threes for us, you know, Jacob's collapse, then the Capgra, not knowing who I was, and then my cancer. And I guess, you know, they say health is wealth. I'm very lucky. I'm just two years clear, which is amazing, you know, and, and I, but I don't take, I don't take this life for granted. I, and I genuinely try and live like that as a philosophy now. Um, I've, I've been very lucky in my career. I feel so grateful that I had a certain level of skill around writing that it allowed me to write. You know, I'd encourage anybody and I hope the book is a shout out for anyone who's felt alone to try and communicate, connect, to know you're not alone. Certainly that's the feeling I'm getting coming back, you know, with, with the, you know, direct messages and social media interaction and conversations I'm having with journalists and friends and, you know, people who come up to me and say they've read the book. But I'm good but I, and I'm hopeful. And, but I don't sweat the small stuff anymore. You know, I don't, I don't try and sweat the big stuff either. I just genuinely, genuinely try and live in a way where I feel grateful to be here. And I tell myself, this is enough. You know, I really want to live and I want to live for as long as I can. And I want to see my kids cooked and I want to see Jacob live the best life he can, but nothing is a given. And I don't take that for granted anymore. And weirdly, it's, it's quite a way to live. It does make you live in the now. It does make you try and enjoy this moment, you know. Are you both still snoring? Do you know what? I actually walked into a window about three weeks ago at a party and um, I, I think I've done something to my septum because I woke up in the middle of the night. I woke up myself with snoring. But yeah, I'm sure we're still snoring. We're definitely snoring. I'm afraid that that hasn't changed. Yeah, that one hasn't got rid of it. Anyway, it's a wonderful book, Abby. Congratulations. Thanks so much. This is not a pity memoir. It's already a bestseller in the UK. It deserves to be one in the US. It's out tomorrow in the US. Finally, Abby... Uh, in addition to your new book, this is not a pity. What else are you reading? What else should people be reading? Well, I'm reading. Um, there's, a, uh, I'm reading a couple of books. Uh, so the book I loved, which is is by a fellow screenwriter, which is My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Georgia Pritchard, who I absolutely love. She writes Succession and Veep, and you know all the greats. She's a brilliant writer, but it's really a memoir about her life, various points in her life, um, and her kind of coming to terms with her own existence as a as a writer as a woman as a as a gay woman as a mother and it's it's very very funny it's laugh out loud funny so I've loved that book and then Kit DeWall's book um she wrote the brilliant book My Name is Leon and she's written a memoir again I've been very hooked into memoirs which is without warning and only sometimes which is about her growing up um in the 60s and 70s in Birmingham as a, a mother with a with a with a very religious mother, and it's it's just beautifully observed. It's got its wit. It's got pathos. There's a Jeanette Winterton feel about yeah, it. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's just a wonderful book. It's an absolutely. I think it's a classic. So both of those books, big shout outs for. And I, I've I I've really felt like I've started to read memoirs and love them now. Um, you know, I could go on and on. You know, when the dust settles, Lucy Eastcott. She's a She's a disaster planner and she's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I've loved that. So just a series of great books in the last few months that I've read. Excellent. Well